0: the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not in your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Justin. I do want to welcome you to Sacred City Church this morning on Reformation Day. If you didn't know, today is the 504th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle in Germany. 95 reasons why the Catholic Church was uh, twisting Scripture and that is Event, unbeknownst to him, he didn't mean he didn't mean for it to, but that sparked the Protestant Reformation and changed the Western world as we know it. And one of the reasons we're sitting here this morning. Uh, The first thing that I want to do this morning, though, before we get into the sermon, is just thank you all uh, for the thoughtful notes of encouragement and the gifts of appreciation that you guys have given me this month. You really did uh, go above and beyond to care for me and my family. And that really does mean uh, the, the world to me. Um, it's hard for me to express. I don't like to take a lot of time up here doing this kind of stuff. It's hard for me to express how much that I love you and how much I'm thankful to get to be one of your pastors. Thank you for your kindness and gen- generosity. I, I really do love you with all my heart. And uh, I'm, not, I'm choosing not to be offended that one of you gave me a watch. Um, I'm, not, I'm not, I don't take anything, you know, Has nothing to do with my ability to preach long sermons or short sermons or keep track of time. I know you just thought I needed a watch. Thank you. I appreciate that. I love you too. All right. So no, uh, if you are just joining us though, we are three weeks into a new sermon series studying the key elements of the Protestant Reformation. We're studying the way that God has moved in the past because we want to see him do something similar again in our day. One of the slogans, and you've been learning a lot of Latin these past few weeks, so let me give you another one. One of the slogans of the Reformation was the Latin phrase, post tenebrae lux. It's going to be the theme of our Advent series coming up in a few weeks, that it means, after darkness, light. This is a theme at the core of Christianity. See, Some religions and worldviews, such as radical environmentalism and naturalistic humanism, teach that the world is on a downward spiral, getting worse and worse, and it will either burn up as it gets too close to the sun or freeze to death in an ice age. Yay for science. (laughs) Others, like socialism and other progressive forms of liberalism, teach that mankind is constantly evolving and progressing towards an inevitable humanitarian utopia as we give more and more control to the government because they're so good at everything. The Bible says they're both wrong. Humanity rises and falls based upon their relationship with the living God. When we reject him, we descend into darkness and culture declines. When we repent of our sin and embrace him, we rise. And as we rise and obey him, culture rises. This biblical reality makes us both realistic about our current circumstances, but also hopeful about the future. We don't know what God's going to do. God may do something in our day like he did in Martin Luther's day. So we don't bury our head in the sand and ignore the current problems in our city. But neither do we resign our city or our state or our country to the spirit of the age while we sit on our hands and wait for Jesus. We don't have to deny the reality that we are living in a really dark moment in human history where our culture at large has rejected God and we are descending into darkness and chaos at a rapid pace. But neither do we need to fear. We can remain hopeful because we know that after darkness, light. God has not left us alone. He brought light during the Reformation and he can bring light again in our day and age. That's what we are hoping for and that's what we are working for in our city so let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon the sermon towards that end this morning. Father, we, we are in darkness in more ways than we realize. Our souls sometimes sit in darkness. Our minds sometimes sit in darkness. There's dark corners of our heart that the light hasn't quite penetrated yet. There's darkness in our families, darkness in our cities, darkness in our country. And we need the light of your word. We need, the, we need those who sit in darkness to see a great light this morning, the light of the world and Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, as I am just a man and I have that darkness in me as well, I ask that you would help me this morning, that I need your grace in order to feed your people your word. I ask that you would think through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cord, that it be all of you and none of me. Let your people hear your voice, Father. Let your sheep respond to your voice. Let all of these words and all of your words not fall on a deaf ear. If they have ears, let them hear this morning. For your glory and their great good, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what was it that actually caused the Reformation, this time of great darkness, to go from darkness to light? What made the Reformation so powerful? To put it simply, the Reformation was a rediscovery of the gospel. It was a rediscovery. See, the gospel had gotten pushed to the wayside. The gospel had gotten hidden or, and forgotten. And, in that day and age, locked inside the Roman Catholic Church where only the popes and the priests and the bishops could understand it. And even then, didn't have a proper understanding of it. So, the gospel itself is what was let loose in the Reformation that sparked This great movement. Now, we use the word gospel around around here a lot. You probably came in here and got your gospel coffee, and you sat in your gospel chair, and you got your gospel parking lot out there, and you're in a gospel-centered community, and I'm gospel-centered preacher, and those were gospel-centered songs, and you know you're breathing gospel-centered air right now, right? We lose our sometimes because our familiar familiarity with that word, we can lose what it actually means when we say it. Now, the word gospel in the Greek is evangelion. It means, quite simply, good news. We say often around here that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Do you know the difference? Let me give you some hypothetical examples here. Here's good news. The Bears won the Super Bowl. Just reality was just too thick in here for that really to land, okay? All right. That was a past tense declaration of something that had actually happened, okay? Here's good advice. If the Bears execute their game plans to perfection and score more points than all the teams they play, they will win the Super Bowl. That's good advice. Do you hear the difference? Here's good news. You don't have cancer. Here's good advice. If you eat real food and cut out all the processed stuff and exercise and take some vitamins and see your doctor regularly, you are less likely to get cancer. Do you hear the difference? Good news is a declaration of something that has actually happened, past tense, that brings present joy to a person. Good advice is subjective is a subjective declaration of something a person must do and usually keep on doing if they want to get a certain outcome. It's the difference between you got an A versus keep studying you might it might work out for you. It's a big difference between those two things. This is why and listen and this is why you know, a declaration, good news brings great joy with it. You got an A, and keep studying. It might go well for you, doesn't really produce much joy. This is why, you know, when the doctor tells you, oh, yeah, just diet and exercise, it doesn't produce great joy in you. It's advice. So, what changed the world during the Reformation? Well, it was the rediscovery of the greatest news in the universe, not good advice. The greatest news of the universe is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what Romans 1 says about the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God... For salvation. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is powerful. Is the power. The Greek word there is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. That's the kind of explosive life changing power. That is inherent in the good news of the gospel. Not the good advice of the gospel. And at this time the Roman Catholic Church had reduced the gospel to good advice. Here's what you do to become a good person. Yeah, you need a little bit of grace from Jesus and grace from God, but you get that grace through the sacraments. And so you gotta show up on every Sunday and you gotta take the sacraments and you gotta pray these these different prayers. And then we have already talked about some of the other beliefs that they had about praying for the dead and about penance and about um, the indulgences. They had all all these different works that you had to do in order to be made right with God. But in the Reformation, they rediscovered the grace of God. And the good news of the gospel blew a hole through the darkness of the Middle Ages and brought about a remarkable light that changed the world for the better. And if we want to see God do something similar in our day, we must rediscover the same gospel. Last week, we looked at the only way we can know for certain what the gospel is. We must look at and search scripture alone. We don't, if we don't look to scripture for our truth, we're all just guessing at the biggest questions in life. Today, we look at one of the pieces of the gospel that makes it such a life-changing, world-renewing, darkness-expelling good news. Namely, that it is from start to, to finish, Alpha and Omega, Sola Gratia, by grace alone. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey describes a conference of comparative religions where experts from around the world were debating which belief, if any, was unique to the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis happened to enter the room during this discussion and When he was told the topic was Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Lewis was right. No other religion places grace at its theological center. It was and remains a revolutionary idea. As Yancey puts it, grace seems to go against every instinct of humanity. See, we are naturally drawn to covenants and karma and works. And if you do good, the gods or God will bless you to cause and effect to earn what you receive. But at its heart, the word grace means an unmerited gift. It's the word charis in the Greek. Many translate it as the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. But that just sounds kind of lame. How could a free gift change the world? How could a free gift change a person so completely from the inside out that they would be willing to be crucified upside down before they denied it? that they would be willing to be burned at the stake before they recanted, that they would rather be killed or crucified or burned than not print the scriptures in the common tongue? Well, the answer is kind of obvious. The free gift must be better than life itself. See, the size of the gift is going to determine our reaction to it, right? Think of it like this. You're in your car and you pull up to the Milltown drive-thru and you order your coffee. When you get to the window, the barista tells you, hey, the lady in the car ahead of you paid for your coffee. How do you feel? Happy, right? Feel good. Maybe good enough to pay it forward. And you know what? I pay for this person behind me too. But does that change your life? No, no. Maybe brightens your day. Doesn't change your life though, right? Small undeserved gift, small reaction, right? Small, small grace, small joy explosion, right? Here's another scenario. This one is depicted pretty well by a new Netflix series, Squid Game. Jav and I have been watching it through VidAngel. VidAngel is an app on your TV or your phone that will filter out anything that you choose from cuss words to violence to sexuality. I really highly recommend it. Anyways, we've been watching this series, South Korean show called Squid Game, and this is the basic premise people have racked up an insurmountable debt some did it through gambling and others through poor business decisions but it doesn't really matter how they did it some healthcare costs all these different things contributed to the reality that they are now so far in debt that they cannot afford to pay their creditors and they are and filing bankruptcy is not an option the creditors are at the door the creditors are coming for their money and if they don't pay they're going to be killed or thrown into prison, or forced into some kind of slavery. Now, can you imagine how that would feel? Many of us know the pressure that it puts on us to be in debt. You have those student loans over your head. You have that credit card debt over your head, that car payment, the mortgage over your head. And if you were to lose your job, that pressure intensifies. But think about having a debt so insurmountable that there is no way you could ever pay it back. That it would literally take you two or three lifetimes to pay it back. Well, in the show, these people that find themselves in such an impossible situation are given an evil opportunity to play a series of simple children's games If they win, they will be rich beyond their wildest dreams and be able to pay everything back and then some. But if they lose, they're immediately killed. It's a brutal life or death wager. But it shows how desperate these people are to be free of their debt. There's no other way out. There's no negotiating with their creditors. There's no picking up a second job. I mean, we're talking about like we have a billion dollar debt over our head. There's no way that we can pay it off. So reluctantly, this is my only option. I'm gonna go play this stupid game and I'm risking my life. Now imagine yourself owing that kind of debt. And then... While standing in line to begin your first game, a man comes up and tells you, Your debt has been paid in full. What kind of reaction would that cause? How would that make you feel? See, small gift small response, insurmountable debt, huge gift. You should have a huge response to that, right? A little grace, a little joy. Big grace, big joy. That should be your response because in that moment, that gift of grace, when someone says, I paid your debt or I will pay your debt, that would cause you, that would literally change your entire life in that moment. It would cause you to, quote, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter one eight. You would sing and shout and fall down and cry. You would ask, Who did this great thing for me and why? Why would you give me such grace? You would, after you fell down on the floor, you would get up and you would say, I owe my life to you. There is nothing you could ask of me that I wouldn't refuse. That guy, I need you to babysit next week. Don, Deal need you to claim the house. Done, deal. Literally, there's nothing they could ask of you because they saved your life. Well, the scriptures tell us that that is actually our story. And if the grace of God doesn't sound special to you, if the grace of God sounds like a firework, and not a cannon going off, you don't get it. If the grace of God doesn't really do anything to your heart, if it doesn't really produce an insane level of joy, then you just don't get it. And more than likely, the reason is that you actually don't believe that you are as bad or you're in a situation similar to those folks in the squid game. You don't know how bad your situation is or was outside the grace of God. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. One of my favorite texts If you've been around here for a while, you've heard me preach it probably many times. And this is Paul the Apostle writing to the church of Ephesians or Ephesus. And this is how he begins chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. You ever written? People that used to be dead. That's kind of odd, right? Writing this letter to somebody who used to be dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, Paul's including himself in those who were once dead. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, just doing what we wanted. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Whoa. Whoa whoa, whoa! whoa! whoa, man! I am not that bad. It's a lot of big nasty words in there. Dead. Whoo! Disobedience, spirits, passions, flesh, desires, children of wrath. Whoa! I'm just a normal dude. Here's what the scripture says about normal men and women says that God created us all good in his image. Now creation, when we're studying grace, we have to start here because creation itself is a gift of grace. God was not in heaven bored. Ah. Oh, Jesus. Spirit. There's nothing to do. What should we do? Let's make let's we need a project. Let's make a world, put people on it, let them screw it up. Then we'll never rest again. I know. God is benevolent. He is love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they exist in a trinity. Okay? They are love. They are ultimately glorious. They are fully passionate about each other. They're totally fulfilled and happy with one another. They are the happy God. And out of this love but that exists between a, between them, they decided as a sheer act of grace to create. A husband and a A husband and a wife come together and their mutual love for one another creates a community, creates a family. They give birth to children. That comes out of God himself. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit decided out of that abundance of love and happiness to create the world. And he created everything there was. Out of darkness, light. He spoke into being, spoke the world into existence, created people in his image to do what he does, to be fruitful and multiply and spread that Around the globe, we were created good. But if you know the story, mankind tempted to, to turn away from God and be their own little gods, to just you know what? this one thing, God said, "You can have a whole garden, eat whatever you want, this one tree don't eat of it." And just like us, right? I remember walking down a hallway when I was a wrestling coach at North Scott High School, and it, it said, there was a big sign that said, "No chewing gum in hallway in the hallway. What do you think was all over that sign? About 100 pieces of chewing gum, right? That's exactly, you tell people not to do something, what are they going to do? They're going to want to do it. Why? There's something in us, right? So we choose to say, you know what? I don't really trust God here. I'm gonna trust myself. Did God really, you know, Satan tempts them. Did God really say that you couldn't even touch this thing, couldn't eat this thing? There's just twisting God's word going on. Anyways, they eat it. They rebel from him, and what what God promised happened. Death entered the world. They were now cursed. They were now in sin and every child that they would ever have was now going to be born in sin. We call this, theologically, the fall. We were created good and then we fell in sin. And now all of creation, including us, are cursed. This is our reality right now. We are now born with what we call original sin. That means we're sinners before we actually sin. Sin is in our DNA. It's in our bloodstream. And then because we are sinners, like the rest of mankind, scripture says here, born children of wrath, is what scripture says here. Jesus even affirms this in the gospel when he says, "If we don't believe in him that we will remain in our sins. We, out of the, our, our identity as sinners, out of our fallen nature, we then commit actual sins. We follow, according to Paul here, the passions of our flesh. We do what we want, right? We eat more than we should. We drink more than we should. We lust. We take. We steal, We do all these the pa- passions of our flesh make idols out of things of the world. We carry out the desires of our body and the mind. Let me ask you now, I'm not that bad, Justin. Okay, well, have you done that? Does that characterize you? Have you lived in the passion of your flesh? Have you carried out the desires of the body and the mind like the rest of Mankind. I know I would raise my hand and say, yes, I have. Have you disregarded God's commands and chose to do your own thing? Have you followed your heart instead of God's word? Have you done what you wanted to do instead of what God has commanded you to do? Well, of course you have. And guess what? It gets worse. God says you did that because you were a sinner and when you followed your way instead of God's way, you were actually following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan himself. See, the Bible tells us our ways are not God's ways. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. We think because we're all sons of disobedience, we think this is no big deal. <laughs> I'm just a normal guy. I'm just a normal girl. And God says, yep. Normal people are children of wrath who have chosen to follow the devil. And because of that, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are spiritually dead people walking. Can we just sit in that for a second? If we come to God and we say, what is wrong with me? What is my greatest problem? God's evaluation of us is worse than anything anyone has ever said about you. He doesn't say, you know what, overall, you're a pretty good person. I mean, compared to a lot of people, I've got a pretty good perspective on this. Compared to a lot of people, You are outstanding. Gold star. You are a gold star human. You know, spiritually speaking, you are not dead. Oh, that's so offensive. At worst, you have a cold. Here's my advice. Take some vitamins read some bible verses drink your coffee out of that one bible verse cup you know you can do all things or something take take a drink out of that get some rest go to church call me in the morning you'll feel better about yourself god doesn't give us good advice he knows dead men don't take advice No, God's diagnosis of you. God says, if you are not in Christ, you are spiritually dead. Totally unable to please God in any way. Totally cut off from him. Now, that does not mean that you're like wicked all the way down. It doesn't mean, you know, you're one step away from being a serial killer. What it means is, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Every single one of our deeds, even our best deeds, are rotten through and through with sin. So, sometimes we, many, every good deed that we do, somewhere down in the line, there's a selfish motivation for doing that good deed. So, even in our best deeds, there's, they're laced with some form of sin, which means every time we do a good deed, we're going deeper and deeper into debt with God because we're still sinning. Do you see the problem here? It's like, God, can I borrow a million dollars? I'm going to pay you back a hundred. That's what we're doing. Because we're trying to do a good deed, that's giving the hundred dollars, but we're borrowing a million from God because we're going into debt. There are no small sins because there are no small, there is no small God to sin against. So all of our and that, that's just our good deeds. Imagine what our evil deeds do. We're racking up debt with God. This is why God says you're not sin sick, you're sin dead. This is one of the greatest differences between Christianity and every other religion on the planet. Scripture doesn't just tell us we are sick and we need some help. It says we are dead and we need a resurrection. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. Every other religion says you are not that bad. Nothing a little mindfulness and good deeds can't fix. Secular religion, like the cultural Marxism that's being pushed on us today, says you aren't dead in your sins. There's actually nothing wrong with you inherently. All of the problems of your life are simply a result of the bad environment you were raised in. Call it poverty or toxic masculinity or gender binaries or the patriarchy. All of that gave you trauma and that's why you do what you do. Your core identity there is that of victim. And now you have a license to live however you want and the world must conform to your wishes. That is a false gospel and offers no real hope. Scripture tells us that we should always be far more concerned with the sin that is in us than the sin done against us. We have all been sinned against. Parents, society, bosses, on and on and on we go. Some way more than others. Not discounting that at all. That makes us all sufferers in some way. We're all victims in some way. But someone else's sin against us doesn't have, a, have the power to keep us from receiving God's gracious gift of salvation, but our sin Does. And what is our great sin? We saw last week, we want to suppress the truth of God. We want to deny that in light of his holiness, we are actually spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins without the grace of God. Now listen, there are a lot of people Think I spend too much time talking about sin? I disagree with them? I get, listen, I'll, I, I'll make a deal with you. I'll stop talking about sin when we stop sinning. Deal? Yeah. Deal. Here's what I believe I don't think most people, most people, not everyone, most people, actually. Think about their sin rightly. Now, we dwell on our problems. We dwell on our insecurities. We dwell on our fears. We dwell on our envies. But we don't call them. Sin. And that is one of the greatest differences between our day and Martin Luther's day. In Luther's day, you did not have to convince people that they were sinners. They already knew it. They lived in a culture that still believed in right and wrong. And that sense of morality, especially in the Ten Commandments, that was felt. You disrespected your parents. You felt that you had sinned. You had lied. You felt that you had sinned. Luther's problem wasn't believing that he was a sinner. It was believing that God could actually forgive a sinner and love him for the rest of his life while that person still continued to sin. His problem was, I think, upside down from what ours is today. Most people who I talk to walk around thinking that if there is a God, he must be really soft. He must not really have very high standards at all. He's not gonna, he doesn't really ask very much of us at all. As one person said, God forgives, that's his job. It's not his job. See, we don't see ourselves the way Luther saw himself and the people of Luther's day saw themselves as great sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. And therefore, because we can't see ourselves that way, we don't erupt with praise when we learn that he has given us the gift of grace. We go, yeah, totally deserved it. I'm awesome. Let me say it one more time before I move on to verse four. If you are not in a living relationship with Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead and there's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. So what hope do we have? Look at verse four. but God. Okay, now, we miss this. That whole first part of this sermon, what we want to hear right now is, what do I need to do? Oh, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm under the wrath of God. I'm cut off from God. What do I have to do? I don't want that to be true of me. What do I need to do? The answer Paul gives us and God gives us in scripture is not, but you. But you chose one day. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps one day. You woke up one day and decided, I'm going to make it happen today. Not Not no more, devil. From this day forward, I'm walking with Jesus. No, that's what we want. But that's not what scripture says because what advice can a dead man take? What does scripture say? But God... What does a dead man need? Someone from outside of themselves putting the paddles on their chest and bringing them back to life. And that's what God spiritually does to every single person who follows Jesus. He puts grace upon them. He gives them faith. He puts the Holy Spirit in them and a dead man comes up off the table and walks for new life. But God... Why would God do that? Being rich in mercy. When God gives us grace, it gives Him glory. We learn something new about God. Oh, He's not just a judge, He's gracious, He's merciful. I have this image of my kids in my mind right there, my girls, when they're playing with their dolls and they can't get an arm or something to, to do what it's supposed to do and they get frustrated. and Child is. Woof. I'm like, that's the kind of God I would be too. <laughs> they're not doing what I want. Gone. But what does God do? Rich in mercy. Dead in their trespasses and sin. Bring them to life. Keep going. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now listen. Why did he love us? Spiritual zombies. Spiritually lifeless. Sinning, 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 sinning. Destroying his stuff bringing hate and envy and all kind of evil stuff into his world. Why did he love us? He loved us because he's loving. He loved us because he's God. He didn't love us because of who we were or what we could do. He loved us because who he is. He's merciful, gracious. He walked down the morgue and he chose dead bodies to love up into new life. He made us alive together with Christ. This is how he did it. See, this is how he did it. God is still holy. So what he did was Jesus Christ came and obeyed the commandments perfectly, did what we could not do. do. Jesus was not born with original sin because God was his father and not Joseph. So he didn't have original sin. And then Jesus never committed actual sin. So therefore he never, the wrath of God was never on him because he had never committed any sin. Right? He lived the perfect life that we don't live and then he died the death that we deserve for our sins. Like the squid game, he took our place and didn't just pay it off financially, paid it off with his very own precious blood. And then he gets resurrected the third day, again, telling us that God accepted the payment and now when we put our faith in him, we get, actually let me say it like this, When Christ went to the cross, he took you with him. And if you, you were crucified with him in the cross. And when Christ got up out of the grave, he brought you with him. And you were resurrected to new spiritual life when Jesus got up out of the grave. So it's not theologically wrong to say, when was I saved? And you answer, the day Jesus got up out of the grave. Because I'm in Christ and he's in me and that's what happened spiritually. And so now when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are grafted into Christ. You are in Christ now. By grace, you have been saved. We didn't deserve any of that. God did it just because that's who he is. And look, and raised us up with him, see? And seated us with him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right now in the throne room of the universe, there's a man sitting there, flesh and blood. We are there with him. He is our older brother, he is the head of the new creation, he is our representative in the new heavens, in the new earth, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, (laughs) immeasurable riches. Of his grace. How much grace does God have? Too much. In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It comes through Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is so much more than just forgiveness and a second chance. Grace makes us alive. It was the grace of God that brought you from spiritual death to life. It wasn't your own doing or choosing that did that. God did that as a solo project on you. Grace unites us to Christ. He took my sin and He gives me His righteousness. Now, God looks at me through Christ, He looks at me like He looked at Jesus. The grace of God saves us and separates us totally from the eternal consequences of our sin. The grace of God raises us up and seats us with Jesus. That means we have authority over the power of the enemy, that he cannot destroy us, that he cannot steal away our salvation. We are in Christ and we will never be put out of Christ we can now resist sin and are compelled by the grace of God to do righteousness. We are not overcome by the evil of this world and all of this, from beginning to end, is a sheer undeserved gift meant to spur us on towards love and good deeds. Think about it. We have been recreated by the grace of God. Given brand new identities in Christ to testify to his work, to his workmanship by doing good works before a watching world. Look how it says right here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. My kids and I, for the first time, watched Ed, Edward Scissorhands last week. Phenomenal show. Forgot how good it was. But basically a Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein movie. He, he is his master's workmanship. He shows off the ability, or lack thereof, of his master. We have been resurrected to new life By the sheer grace of God. And our lives are meant to testify to our Creator. We are His workmanship. So how it says it. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not by good works. We become his workmanship through our good works. No, it's not according to our works, it's all grace, so that none of us can boast. But we've been resurrected to new life. Four good works. What good works? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The eternal, almighty, omniscient God has a plan for every single one of our lives. Whether that is to be an engineer or a housewife or the president of the United States or to start a school or whatever it is. He's prepared some works that you are meant to walk in and he created you anew spiritually to empower you and enable you to walk in those works and do good in the world. This means that people should see the unique way we live our lives. and know there is something different about those people. Scholar Peter O'Brien says this, there was a time when we all walked in disobedience and sin, followed the ways of this world, were in terrible bondage to the devil, and were destined for wrath, but now, because of God's mighty salvation, in which a glorious change has been effected. We are expected through the agency of his Holy Spirit to demonstrate a changed lifestyle. This is how the grace of God changes us. He doesn't ask us to change first and then he puts his stamp of approval on us. He asks us at At best, to have the light bulb go on in our mind to say, okay, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. I will accept what you say about me here. And I need someone out from outside of myself to save me. I need grace. And God has given us that grace in the person and work of his son. Can you see Jesus living for you? Can you see Jesus dying for you? He lived for you to please the Father. He died for you to appease the wrath of God, to pay your debt. Can you see that? Can you see it as good? Can you see it as a sheer gift of grace? Does it feel more like a free coffee? Or does it feel more like a spiritual resurrection? Let me pray. Father, we put no hope in the words of man, no hope in our own thoughts, or no hope in our own feelings. Our hope is in the grace of God that you produce change You've been doing it for over 2,000 years. Your church exists because you still give grace to sinners. You are a good and gracious God to whom we owe all of our life, all of our worship. And so we give you that this morning. Thank you for not doing it our way, not giving us a ladder to climb up, not giving us good advice to follow but given us good news of a Savior who did everything we could not do would you give your people grace give them faith to believe this morning as we come to celebrate the Lord's table would this be another measure of grace for us this morning we come with Hands that are still stained with sin, we come, we're, we're still imperfect people, we come and we open up our hands and we just say, you have the one thing that we need more of and that's grace and you give it to us week in and week out and for that we are thankful. So we will take the body that, is, that represents the, or the bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us and we'll take the cup that represents the new covenant that was poured out cup of the blood of Christ that covers all of our sins and we drink it in worship to you today. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.